when you come into contact with things that you just don't understand, your mind has to broaden to try and make sense of them. And that will help improve you as a person. You're listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Travel has been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. But as I've gotten older, and as I've learned more about the industry through my reporting, I've really started to see just how complicated travel can be. So each week, we are diving in to some of the most fascinating and complex topics when it comes to travel. And it's all with the aim of helping you, and let's be honest, helping me, learn to be a smarter, better traveler. Hello, and welcome to season two of the Better Travel Podcast. I am so excited to be here with you again. So we are kicking off this season with an episode that I think feels very appropriate to the current moment. You know, it's January, and in many parts of the world, including where I am here in France, COVID numbers are pretty high right now. So it's a time when a lot of us are staying pretty close to home, but also, you know, at the beginning of the year, we might be looking ahead to 2022 and thinking about what we want to do, maybe how we want to change. And also, if you're anything like me, you might be doing some serious daydreaming about some of the trips that you hope to take later in the year. So kind of in line with a moment of January reflection, the question that's driving this week's episode is how can I be a more thoughtful traveler? And we have two fantastic guests who are going to help us answer that question. One is an associate professor of philosophy who has written a book about the philosophy of travel, and the other is a travel writer and longtime podcaster who has spent nearly six years helping her listeners try to answer that very question. But we're actually going to kick things off with the latest installment in our language lessons series, which we heard that a lot of you enjoyed in season one. If you're not familiar with it, these language lessons are short conversations with someone who is fluent in a language other than English. Someone who can teach us not just a phrase or two in their language, but who can also show us how those bits of language offer a window into the culture of the place where that language is spoken, which is honestly one of my favorite things about learning other languages. So for our first installment this season, I got to have a little virtual trip to the big island of Hawaii, which is where I reached Ilihia Johnson, a public affairs officer for the Hawaii Tourism Authority, who was gracious enough to be my teacher this week. So Ilihia taught me some beautiful phrases in the Hawaiian language, which he speaks fluently. But he also explained the history of the Hawaiian language, how it was oppressed for a long time, and how it's making a comeback. The Hawaiian language, or Olalo Hawaii, is the native language of these islands, spoken exclusively until Western contact. And even after the first Western contact, Hawaiian was the language of everyday life. At one point, Hawaii was among the most literate kingdoms in the world, writing, reading, all in Hawaiian. There are, we're so fortunate to have a treasure trove of historical newspapers. So Hawaiian went from 
the language spoken by everyone in the kingdom. Over time, in the early 1900s, it fell out of use uh, with the, the American takeover of the Hawaiian kingdom. There was more emphasis placed on English as the language of the future, the language of success. Um, and there was a law that was put into place that banned school instruction through Hawaiian. And so effectively, the Hawaiian language was stamped out, but for small pockets in communities, in families. And in the 1970s, there was a reawakening of Hawaiian pride, my own journey in the language, which was that my family had been removed from it for a couple of generations. There was a movement to establish Hawaiian language immersion schools to create these language nest preschools, to bring the elders who still spoke together with the children whose parents did not speak, to bring them together in an environment to learn, to hear directly from the mouths of the elders, uh, to bring that language back. I was in the sixth graduating class from high school to be educated entirely through the Hawaiian language in over a hundred years. Today, Children across Hawaii can attend a preschool, kindergarten, elementary, middle school, high school, um, on through college. There's a College of Hawaiian Language that has degrees up to doctorates all through Hawaiian. Wow, wow. And you mentioned the law that had been put in place that banned, the, was it the speaking of Hawaiian or the teaching of Hawaiian or, or both? It banned public instruction through the Hawaiian language in the schools. And this isn't something unique to the Hawaiian language. It's not something unique to the Hawaiian people. Native peoples around the world have faced this kind of challenges with the language of, of the colonizers supplanting their native tongue. So we're not at all unique in this, unfortunately, sadly, tragically in cases. There are stories of children being severely punished for speaking Hawaiian in school. When you remove a person's ability to speak their native language, when you rip that away from them, you're also ripping away the ability to understand the brilliance of their ancestors. I count myself extremely fortunate. I'm very grateful to the people who, who held on to this stuff so that there was a language to revitalize. When those Hawaiian language preschools began, some counts, said that there were fewer than 50 children under the age of 18 who spoke Hawaiian as a first language. The language was definitely on the brink of extinction, gone. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, certainly. So I would love to dive in and um, explore some of these words or phrases um, in Hawaiian. Um, I wonder, do you have any, yeah, does anything come to mind, any particular words or phrases that, um, that you'd like to share? Absolutely. So perhaps many folks who, who are listening to this podcast are familiar with that word aloha, to greet, to love. It's used as hello, goodbye, I love you. Aloha is a very important value to the Hawaiian people. Equally as important is the value, and this, is a, this will be a new word for many folks, malama. Malama is to care for, to nurture, to cherish, to uphold. If we aloha something, that will compel us to malama that thing. 
or that person or that place. Um, so to take that a little bit further, our operating principle at the Hawaii Tourism Authority at this time is a phrase, malama ku'u home. Malama ku'u home. Home. You, you'll see a couple of influences there. One being that word home from the English home. Our genealogies go back to places, to natural forces, natural elements, things like that. So it's not, we're not disconnected from our home such that we would need a word for home. And so that's why that, that home appears as borrowed from the English. And so ku'u home, my beloved home. It is mine. I, I love it. I will defend it. I will do what I need to take care of it, to cherish it. Malama kuuhome means caring for my beloved home, which is Hawaii. It is our hope. It is, to me, our higher purpose of, of inviting folks to come here. The visitors will come, experience not only how special this place is, but how special our bond with our place is, and that those visitors will return home, wherever home is, France, Iowa, and take that idea of malama to their home so that they can go home and malama the place that they call home. Malama kuuhome. Malama kuuhome. Perfect. Thank you so much to Elihia for taking the time to come on the show. And one thing that he told me that I wanted to mention is that you can actually study the Hawaiian language on Duolingo, the language learning app that you might have heard of. So if you want to learn a little more Hawaiian, that's one way you can do it. But now we are going to jump right into the question at hand here, and that is, how can I be a more thoughtful traveler? So our next guest is Amanda Kendall, a travel writer. You can check out her blog at notaballerina.com. She's also a teacher of travel writing and the host, for nearly six years now, of the Thoughtful Travel Podcast. So I reached Amanda at her home in Australia, and I started off by asking her how her understanding of thoughtful travel and what that actually means has changed over the years. Ah, it's such a good question, too. It's evolved considerably. And part of that is through a lot of the different people that I get to speak to and their their particular experiences. So, for example, when I get to hear about how um, how travellers have impacted a community, you know, back in the day, we you know, six years ago, a lot of people still thought like the basic like volunteer tourism or visiting an orphanage was a great idea, you know. And of course, over the time, we've learnt that this is really a bad idea in most cases and something that we shouldn't do. So those hearing about those kind of stories, I guess I got to kind of learn on steroids. Like we learn from our own travel experiences, but because I get to speak to, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of other travelers who are doing really diverse things, I've been able to learn, you know, from them over the years. So I don't think there's any way that I haven't changed my thoughts and opinions about travel over that time. Like I still think travel is the best thing in the world. And I really wish, especially, you know, in these pandemic years, I really wish I could do more of it. But at the same time, I have got kind of a, 
I suppose, an increasingly thoughtful lens on it and want to be more and more thoughtful every time I travel. And I kind of see towards a future where I really only travel a couple of times a year, but, you know, longer, really well thought out trips, um, you know, just to one or two places with really, you know, diverse and interesting purposes in mind and, and that kind of thing, rather than, you know, quick travel all over the place the way that I used to do. Interesting. Well, I think the sort of evolution that you're talking about is something that I think a lot of people are maybe thinking about more and more in the pandemic and moving away from the quick sort of weekend city break here and there to really thinking about how do I go for many weeks or many months or even a whole year in a certain place and really dive in. Um, that leads me to another question I wanted to ask you because I was listening to one of your episodes recently in, in which you talked about bucket list travel and your opinion on bucket list travel. And this kind of goes hand in hand with that. But yeah, what do you think of bucket lists? So I am not a fan of bucket lists. I kind of think that the average person's bucket list has a, this is not true of everyone, but a lot of people, it's kind of in, kind of encourages people to list, you know, dozens of famous sightseeing spots that they want to tick off on their list um, you know, before they die, which is, you know, obviously where that phrase evolved from. But like, I don't really have any bucket list ideas for my future travels. I like to kind of see how things arise rather than ticking off a list. So as an example, my last, well, last big-ish trip was actually 2019 now because we've been locked in here in Western Australia since then. Uh, and well, we had to go to a wedding in Thailand. So that was, you know, a thing that was the impetus for a trip somewhere. And of course, I didn't want to just go up to the wedding and back. I thought, well, what else will we do? And I kind of looked around and, uh, you know, as you know, when, when you're looking, things just kind of appear. An amazing airfare um, deal came out, you know, came into my email bo in inbox with a deal to Copenhagen or uh, I think it was either Oslo or Stockholm. It was Scandinavia. So we could go to Thailand, go to the wedding and then continue on to Scandinavia and then return home. And it was an incredibly cheap deal for someone from Western Australia. And I chatted to my son and he's like, well, of course we have to go to Denmark. He's obsessed with Lego, has always been obsessed with Lego. And <laughs> I was like, well, okay, that's a good reason. And at about the same time, I'd, uh, I'd learned about the author Helen Russell and I'd read her book, The Year of Living Danishly, because I'm kind of really intrigued by Scandinavia in general, because they do, you know, quite a lot of things differently. And, you know, they're culturally, they're kind of fascinating. And I'd read that book. I thought, oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. He's right. We have to go to Denmark. And so, you know, then we found a way to really have a pretty thoughtful um, couple of weeks in Denmark. Uh, that was probably not on anyone's bucket list. Perhaps Legoland in Denmark was on my son's bucket list if he would have one. But the rest of our experiences was really just kind of trying to understand the culture and, you know, asking lots of questions and meeting lots of local people and, you know, being, I suppose, you know, really aware of what we could get out of that trip and what we could, you know, give back by, you know, being kind of cultural ambassadors for Australia at the same time. So, yeah, so I suppose that's more the way I would like to approach travel always rather than tick, tick, tick off a bucket list. Um, fantastic. Thank you. And that leads me to another question I'd like to ask you, because I understand you recently got a certificate in sustainable travel. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so that was one of my favourite things of last year. It was through the RISE Travel Institute and I've uh, just checked the name because it's a bit long. It's a Certificate in Sustainability and Anti-Oppression in Travel. So it was, 
I mean, to summarise, it was a certificate in thoughtful travel. It covered, you know, sustainability and wildlife tourism and, uh, you know, impact on communities and all kinds of, you know, fabulous topics. And to actually kind of, you know, study that as a, you know, as a meaty, you know, look at the academic research and relate it back to you know, my experiences and experiences of others. And uh, it was absolutely wonderful. So, yeah, highly recommend. <laughs> Fantastic. I wonder, I mean, it sounds like you covered a lot of ground in that course, but if you could distill a few of the biggest or maybe most important or most surprising lessons that you drew from that course for our listeners, I wonder, yeah, what would those be? Uh, well, one for sure would be that nothing is black and white. So uh, I kind of knew this, but it really kind of brought it home. For example, there was a unit on wildlife tourism, which included uh, a couple of um, experts in elephant tourism having a kind of a almost a debate as part of the um, the curriculum. So I, I had got to that. You just don't ride an elephant full stop. You know, that's that's a you know, you should never do it. That's that was my thinking going into the course. You know, there's lots of good reasons that we shouldn't do it and you still i still think you shouldn't ride an elephant but they talked about you know the impact on local communities and you know when um like companies like intrepid completely just overnight basically deleted elephant riding from their tours then there's all these unemployed people and what do they do with those and the deeper you got the more complicated it went and there's no right or wrong in every situation you've got to be um you know you've got to be well thoughtful about it i suppose so that was one thing the the grayness of of tra traveling ethically i suppose uh and i think another thing that i I want to know more about and so I learned more about it in this course is that really thinking about the impact on local people when you travel. So I'd been on the kind of trips where you are trying to help a local a local group in some way and trips that have been set up well to, you know, they'd asked the local people, you know, how can we help you and, you know, really done a reasonably good job of really helping out a local community. but. I guess um, the course has really emphasised to me even even more deeply how important it is to have you know really local contacts when you're trying to um, have an impactful trip like that. That it's it's really just so difficult to you know to have our you know white privilege and fly in um, fly in anywhere thinking we can really do anything impactful when often what the most impactful thing would be dollars in the right place rather than bodies on the ground. It's even more complicated than I thought, but it helped to kind of clarify some of those things more for me. So I guess that's something I really want to keep thinking about in the future. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think we had um, a guest on the podcast in season one who talked about um, she had worked with a trainer who had, um, you know, kind of worked with people who were about to travel abroad to do a volunteer project. And she said, now imagine, and I think these are Americans, she said, imagine if you had a group of people from Mongolia coming from the United to the United States who were going to try to solve like gun reform in the United States. And they're here for two weeks and they know nothing about the subject design a program for them that would actually mean something and they were just kind of like what <laughs> that's hard <laughs> but that's so perfect what a great analogy it's just ideal yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. realizing how much we don't know is such an important first step in that I also understand that you are working on or have already written a book about the benefits of travel can you tell me about that yeah, so I so during the pandemic, I suppose I've done the very cliched thing of writing a book, as I believe many people did, but um, you had to use that time somehow. But it's a book I've been thinking about for a long time, and obviously I had more time to work on it. 
Uh, it's about why we must travel and the benefits of it. So a kind of combination of the research that shows benefits from travel. So there's researchers in all kinds of fields like tourism and economics and management and psychology and you name it, who have actually found lots of benefits to travel. I mean, we know that travel benefits us, but it's nice to see it in a, you know, a researched academic paper as well. And so it combines those kinds of things with my own experiences and some of my podcast guests as well. Probably the best way to describe it is a fairly standard nonfiction book, but I want to turn it into a little bit more memoir style just because my initial book was like, we must travel. Like it was quite, you know, this is so beneficial. We just have to do it. And here's the research that proves why. And I think having spent, especially 2021, not leaving the state, um, once, which was the first time in I don't know how many, 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 many years that's ever happened to me. It's got, anyway, it's changed my thinking a little bit and I just want to incorporate some of that and, uh, you know, a little bit of a rewrite into more memoir style uh, before I send it back out into the publishing world. So that's um, the job of the next few months is to, to look at that. Fantastic. So could you sort of maybe give us some highlights? I'm eager to hear, like, so why must we travel? Why is it so important? Oh, there's so many reasons. In fact, in this original manuscript, there are 20 chapters. Each chapter is a, is a very important reason. But so some of those chapters are things like that travel um, builds our self-confidence, that it uh, increases our self-esteem, uh, that it increases our creativity and our curiosity. And, you know, I mean, research shows that that creativity gets taken back into like your workplace, for example. You know, there's a lot of research that shows um, that employees who take time out to travel come back and are better employees for it. There's in lots of different ways. So um, what else? Gratitude and mindfulness that travel teaches us a lot more about that. And we, you know, we know there's kind of, you know, really big catchphrases at the moment that these things are important and travel is really good for it. Um, being flexible, stretching our comfort zone. Actually, the stretching comfort zone thing comes out of um, management research that uh, that, that was uh, like for business management, that that was kind of a way to make people be better business managers and stuff. And only after that did it get taken over into like travellers saying, yes, I want to stretch my comfort zone. So I found out all sorts of uh, fascinating things through that. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. And you listed some really amazing and some of my favourite things about travelling, really. And um, it makes me think of, you know, we had Rick Steves as the final guest of season one. And one of the things that he said that really struck me was, you know, a lot of people try to avoid culture shock. But, you know, we really should embrace the culture shock because that's the growing pains of a broadening perspective, which I just love. And travel is both a fun and incredibly effective way to do that. Well, exactly. And that kind of thing is why I had this kind of a notion that it's why we must travel. Because even people who haven't become fans of travel yet, I always feel like, yeah, but if you just do it, you'll understand that it really is like, you know, it's the quickest path to kind of amazing self-development and growth. And, you know, you will, you will learn so much from doing it. Uh, and, you know, the more, I suppose, risks you can take, I mean, in risks in terms of personal, you know, not jumping out of a plane, but, you know, trying to speak another language to someone or, um, you know, anything, trying a new food, all of those kinds of things. They just, they have benefits way beyond that simple situation. They really, really change us, you know, as people and we return home quite different, I think. So, yeah. 
Fantastic. Yeah. And you also work as um, a teacher of travel writing. Is that right? Uh, so, yes, I've been running um, often on a course or courses in a called Travel Journal School. The idea is not to be not for people who want to become like professional travel writers, but for people who want to record their own travels in a way that they actually want to read again. So, you know, a lot of people keep their travel journal and it's kind of painstakingly boring and they'll get home and they, they even on the trip they kind of already hate doing it or they give up because it's too boring to do and then when they get home they never never ever read it again. So the idea behind it was, okay, well, let's learn how we can um, make our travel memories and whether it's written form or we look always look at other kinds of things as well, you know, whether it's even that we kind of document it on the social media platform or on a blog or through a photo book with, you know, some captions or whatever, lots of different ways. But I think it's a really useful way to reflect on our travels as well as have, it's, you know, it is lovely to have a memory to look back on. My um, family and I, we went to Europe when I was nine in 1985 and my mum kept a diary on that trip. And to this day, um, not a month goes by where I don't ring her up and say, hey, can you check back on this and find out when we did this or what did we do in this spot? We're always talking about it and she'll go back and look in her diary. So uh, I think that um, these can be really valuable, you know, kind of heirlooms almost and memories and souvenirs of a trip and also help us to reflect on you know, reflect on our trip in a way that is thoughtful and, you know, helps us kind of learn from it as well. So that's where Travel Journal School came from. Fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. And wonderful to hear that your your mother still has the, the journal from when you went to Europe. But that's, <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, when I've kind of gone home to my parents' house and I go through my old things and have found little notebooks and things that I kept while traveling, I'm really struck by how I have no memory whatsoever of the event until I, and sometimes yes. I read about it and it triggers a memory and sometimes I read about it and I still, I have no memory of it, but it's wonderful to read it. Well, I wonder if for anybody listening who maybe has never done a travel journal, but might like to start that or, you know, might like to start the habit. Do you have any advice or, you know, what's the best way to start or what are different ways that you might think about starting a travel journal? For the purpose of kind of becoming more thoughtful. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I think the most important part is to not um, not try to capture everything because I think that's a common mistake that people kind of sit down maybe, you know, at the end of the day on, while they're travelling and try and write down everything that happened in minute detail, uh, which is A, time-consuming and so they get sick of doing it and B, often boring. So an exercise I do in travel journal school is called the One Thing Journal and it's where you look back on your whole day and just find one thing. And it might be a really tiny thing, but just something that seems, for whatever reason, it just seems important or memorable to you. And it might be something almost silly, like someone, I mean, I love to people watch. So it might be someone that I watched when I was, you know, at a restaurant and I was, you know, kind of spying on someone for half an hour. That's the kind of thing I might do. Um, and it might be really fascinating. And that might be my one thing, or it might be, you know, one particular thing you saw in a museum or whatever. But focusing on that, on a one on one thing and writing down something about that. Um, and when you do that, we often, we also do an exercise about using all the senses. So, you know, we when we're writing about travel memories, we very often talk about sight and um, and we'll quite often talk about taste, actually, because, you know, often we're having uh, unusual foods or interesting good foods when we travel. But we don't often talk about what we could hear or, you know, touching things um, or the smells. So 
uh, we always do this exercise. Okay, use all the senses. Fantastic, fantastic. It sounds like good writing advice in general, I would say. <laughs> well, fantastic. I mean, you've come up with so many lovely ideas. I love, you know, thinking about going to fewer places, but staying longer and, um, you know, avoiding the bucket list, but kind of finding more genuine reasons to go to places and, you know, using sort of reflection through journaling. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. That is lovely. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much to Amanda for joining me. If you'd like to hear more from her, check out her blog at notaballerina.com and of course her podcast, The Thoughtful Travel Podcast, which is lovely and fun and of course incredibly thoughtful, just like she is. So our next guest comes with this question of how to be a more thoughtful traveler from a philosophical perspective. Emily Thomas is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Durham in the UK and she has written a beautiful and eye-opening book that describes in a really accessible way what some of the big names in Western philosophy, from Francis Bacon to René Descartes to Henry Thoreau, have to say about the ethics of travel and about why travel is so important. So our producer, Artemis Irvin, conducted this interview with Emily, and she started the conversation by asking what modern travelers can take away from the work of these big-name philosophers. Philosophers have thought a lot about the benefits of travel and, and some of the benefits it, um, it are it, quite practical. Right? So, for example, Henry Theroux, American philosopher, wrote a book called Walden, uh, where he goes and builds himself a wooden log cabin um, in the woods and he uh, sort of connects with nature. And, and for Theroux, this kind of nature travel it is all about getting yourself alone into nature and really feeling it. Um, and the idea is that this will make you happier. You will feel a, a deep connection with the world and this will be good for you. Um, other philosophers have written about how it, travel can um, be good for you from a kind of educational point of view. Um, you'll encounter other cultures, um, you'll improve your standing of history and politics and how the world works. Um, but I personally think the best benefit of travel, it, as pointed out by philosophers, um, is the value of experiencing otherness, um, of experiencing the unfamiliar. Right? So, Michael de Montaigne and Descartes, both of them talked a lot about how when you come into contact with things that you just don't understand, your mind has to broaden to try and make sense of them. And that's a really good thing to do, that that will help improve you as a person. Mm, yeah, fascinating. I was really keen to know if, um, I know that you're very well travelled yourself. Have you found yourself using those the lessons that you've just described and um, the ideas from philosophers you've just described in your own travels? I definitely have. The sense of seeking out things I'm really unfamiliar with it, um, is something that I have been doing throughout my travel my whole life. What has happened since I've written this book has actually been a bit more specific than that. One of the things I got really into um, was what maps are. I'd say maps seem like they're really straightforward objects. Actually, they're very peculiar. But, um, a map really affects the way that you see the world, and it can do so in a very conscious way. And I've been thinking a lot about Google Maps, which is something I use all the time. You know, I'm 
I go to a conference in an unfamiliar city, I whip out Google Maps. And, and I think because the interface of that is the same all over the world, Google Maps looks the same, whether you're in London or, or Beijing or Sydney, that, that can lead you to think that the whole world is somehow the same, that the maps kind of push you into thinking that the world is, is homogenous. And, and I found myself, when traveling recently, really consciously trying to move away from using Google Maps to trying to use local maps. And, and that actually really affected the way that I saw the places. So maps is one thing. And something else that I really noticed is, there's a kind of travel experience that philosophers wrote about it called sublime experiences which is a feeling of pleasurable terror it's the feeling that you get when you look out over at like rocks on the edge of a mountain or, or stand very close to a lightning storm and I found that I was repeatedly seeking out those kinds of experiences it's standing on the very edge of cliffs like looking down and into a valley say and, and I became really conscious of the fact this is really something that philosophers have thought hard about and I am only enjoying this because I am close but not too close <laughs> to the edge of the cliff yeah yeah could you give us an example of the way that philosophy has influenced travel? I can. So here is an perhaps unexpected one. Back in the 17th century, there were these big debates about the nature of space and time. And a guy called Henry Moore, working in 1660s Cambridge, came up with a new theory arguing that space is god's omnipresence in the world so space is a real thing and it's actually god's presence and this idea was picked up by isaac newton and who massively popularized it and from there lots of poets and writers and painters picked it up and this idea makes its way into travel so previously people had thought of big infinite seeming landscapes like mountainscapes as being uh, like sort of terrible ugly desolate warts upon the earth and when they begin to think about big infinite spaces as connected with god suddenly mountains undergo this evolution and, and they become cathedrals to the divine and like these beautiful and beautiful kind of crystalline divine structures made real people just love them and that sparks a craze for mountain tourism because people are reading about these amazing godlike mountains in in poets and seeing them in paintings and they want to go out and see them for themselves and, and this is a big factor in the growth of alpine tourism in the 18th century onwards philosophy affecting travel mm, brilliant that kind of leads me on to my next question very nicely, actually, which is um, about how we can find um, difference and otherness in an increasingly homogenised world, which is something you talk about in your book. There is this idea that the world is becoming homogenised everywhere the same. And lots of people have been lamenting it, in fact, for a really long time. And I think back in the 18th century, one travel writer complained that London and Paris are basically the same city. I am not convinced that this is true. Sure, there are now global companies, you know, famously, you can see a McDonald's in most cities around the world, but I actually don't think that these cities are the same. And I think that 
the trick is to break away from these global companies. If you're a Westerner, to break away from Western companies and comforts um, and go experience the things that are unique to the place that, that you're in. It is possible these days to travel all the way around the world and not really experience anything that is unfamiliar to you. If I were to fly to China and I stay in a Western hotel while I'm there and I go to a philosophy conference, I'm probably going to experience things that are very familiar. But if I leave the conference hotel and, and I go out into the world and I meet people and begin eating foods and, and seeing different styles of architecture and different art galleries, then I'm going to have experiences that are very unfamiliar to me. Um, and I think that is what we should be looking for when it comes to real travel and mind broadening. And another aspect of, I guess, being a more thoughtful traveller that feels very pertinent to this conversation is um, something you talk about in your book, which is the ethics of travelling to places which are being destroyed by climate change. But it's like last chance to see um, tourism. How can we be more thoughtful while still experiencing some of these places in the world that are vulnerable to change or destruction? In itself, I don't think there is anything wrong with last chance to see tourism. You can imagine there's a rainbow outside in the sky and someone shouts to you, hey, come on out, it's only going to be here for another minute and you rush outside to see it. It's wonderful. But why not? The particular problem with last chance to see tourism is when we are visiting places that are under threat, rising sea levels, rising temperatures, places like glaciers or low-lying islands, and that the very act of visiting these places it hastens their demise. Because, for example, visiting the Arctic might involve a great big carbon footprint to do so, which is part of why the Arctic is heating in the first place, or maybe you're letting litter or things go there and that's also contributing to its destruction. So this is the real problem, visiting these places when the act of visiting is, is hastening their doom. And I think to avoid that, we just have to try and be really responsible travellers, and which means doing it a bit of research on the best way to mitigate these issues. When that comes to visiting places like the Arctic, obviously we don't want to be littering, but we also don't want to be uh, feeding animals unfamiliar foods or trampling over places where we might be damaging the, um, the wildlife or the undergrowth and, and there are there's a lot of research into how we can visit these places responsibly but there are various controversial ideas like perhaps they we should be introducing quotas you know there are some countries like Bhutan that have introduced limits on tourism seemingly to uh, to quite positive effect um, and perhaps we should be doing something like that as well yeah that's a really that's a really helpful way of thinking about it I wanted to ask you what questions can listeners ask themselves before they travel to incorporate some of the insights that philosophers have shown us about travel if traveling is all about encountering the unfamiliar then I think the most important thing to do is to encounter it. And you're going to do that by reading about a place before you visit or maybe watching documentaries. 
so that when you arrive in that place, you can try and make sense of more of the things that you are confronted by. And when you arrive, get out into the world, you know, go for long walks, see what the local buildings and landscapes and food are like. And I think push yourself as far out of your comfort zone as you can and really embrace all the things that we don't know. In our everyday lives, it's so easy to think that we know lots of things. And one of the great things about travel is that it shows you just how little we know about the universe. Like we are very tiny and the world is very big. And I think it's a really good thing if travel can remind us of that. That's a lovely note to end on, actually. So thank you so much, Emily, for, for sharing your insights, both as a philosopher and as an experienced traveller. Thank you very much. This has been lovely. Wow, what a wonderful thought to end on there. I mean, one message that I love that came through strongly from both Amanda and Emily was the importance of really putting yourself out there and maybe making yourself uncomfortable when you travel. Because it's certainly possible to travel without doing that, right? I mean, you can just stick with the people you know, the foods you know, and maybe interact only minimally with your surroundings. And, you know, maybe there are times when we really just need an escape from work or whatever, and that's all we're up for. But when you can, gosh, there is so much to be gained by doing things like, you know, hiring a local guide who can give you a tour of a city, having the courage to just throw yourself into a local language, even if that means making mistakes or eating a food that maybe you never thought you would try and just doing your best to be a cultural chameleon, at least for a little while. So thank you so much to Emily for taking the time to join us. If you would like more from her, I highly recommend her book, which is called The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad, and it was published in 2020. So that is it for episode one of season two. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. If you would like to support the show, you can tell a friend about us or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. You know, we're still kind of new kids on the block, and that kind of thing really helps people find us. And come back next Thursday. We have another great episode in the works. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Artemis Irvin is our producer and social media editor, and Jessica Danheiser composed our score. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week. <laughs>